Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode, we never really did know what was going on in someone else's life. We just assumed and colluded to ignore it, right? The kids are going to show up after sleepless nights without breakfast, and they were going to act like kids who were ready to learn. And the teachers who did the unique, heroic work of actually meeting their kids where they were and making sure they're okay and doing that kind of slowing down would always change the learning situation. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. I'm thrilled to welcome back my dear friend and positive psychologist, Robert Zeitlin. To learn more about Robert and his journey over the years, you can listen to episode 11. Today, we focus our conversation on his most recent work during the pandemic. Robert is the author of the book, Laugh More, Yell Less, a guide to raising kick-ass kids. When the pandemic started, he decided to publish the stuck-at-home edition of that book, and then he followed with another one. But I'm not a teacher, a parent's guide to learning under lockdown. Robert has been helping parents and children turn the challenges created during distance learning and working from home into learning opportunities for the whole family. During our conversation, we dive into the learning superpowers from positive psychology that can help parents identify their children's character strengths as they learn together and make their lives better. We also unpack the tension between parents and teachers during distance learning and provide guidance and insights to help them rebuild trust with each other as they return to the new norm at home and in the classroom. Robert and I take our conversation to a whole new level when we start exploring the concept of learning in relationships. We use our shared experience in the mastermind group we co-created in 2018 to unpack the role of time and space, infinite and finite games, and so much more in learning. I hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Let's dive right in. Hello, Robert. Welcome back to Impact Learning. Thank you, Maria. I'm excited to be here. So fun fact, people don't know that, you were the first uh, guest, the first person I interviewed while I was uh, learning how to podcast in the summer of 2018. Now, this interview never aired, neither will it ever air, (laughs) but we had a do-over and that was episode 11. So for those who want to learn more about your journey and the work you've been doing over the years, they can listen to episode 11 and we'll also put a link in the show notes. 
I invited you to come back because while I have been observing and talking about the largest social experiment in learning how to navigate adversity and ambiguity with respect to distance learning and working from home, you have been in the trenches. You've been doing a lot of work. So I want to thank you for coming back to share your experience and insights because they will help our listeners to navigate their learning journey. So thank you for for joining me again, Robert. It is my great, great pleasure. So let's start with the work you do and what you have been up to during the pandemic. Like you said, so many things. I think as much as people were either on the surface or sort of underneath freaked out when the pandemic started and things started changing and our social situation started changing, our learning environment started changing. I started getting very active on a, on a sub-atomic level, vibrating and creating and working very hard to pivot. And just like that first episode that will never see the light of day, my first pivot was a great idea that was actually before its time and was not really what I should be doing. And then within a few weeks, I started in the direction that I've that I've been on pretty much since then, which is doubling down on my supportive parents. For those who don't know you, what is your profession? I'm a positive psychologist. I'm licensed psychologist. Actually, now I'm authorized to, to work in multiple states and I also I'm a school certified psychologist who's been working in, in the schools in Philadelphia for 21 years now. Beautiful. You wrote a book. What is the book about? I published two books during the pandemic. One was an update of my 2015 book, Laugh More, Yell Less, A Guide to Raising Kick-Ass Kids. I created the Stuck at Home edition. So I augmented a lot of the ideas that were very applicable and added pieces that were going to be helpful to parents who are now trying to parent with much more of a 24-7 format. But I think the book that you're referencing is one I published in September of 2020 called But I'm Not a Teacher, A Guide to Learning Under Lockdown. Mm -hmm. Who did you write this book for and why did you write it? Like many things that we do, my original intent of who I was writing it for and the purpose evolved while I was writing it. So I began with the mission to give parents some how-to manual with tips as the school year was starting up. Our first school year was starting in the pandemic. We had finished the prior school year and it was a mess. But now we had the summer to plan. And so with parents walking into the ultimate challenge, as you said, of managing distance learning, and working from home, each of their work settings and social environments changing while their kids were, you know, seeing the next phase of this adventure. What I set out to do is to write a book of tips and techniques and tricks from my toolbox as a positive psychologist and my knowledge of schools. But what it eventually became was I felt there's another part of me that wanted to write a different book I wasn't aware of as I was writing it. And that that book was more of a manifesto on learning and very much echoes and resonates with the work that you've been doing here and since I've known you. And so I thought, well, maybe this book isn't for the parents who are going to pick it up and look for a manifesto, but I ended up weaving the two things together. So it was a little bit of a, a rant or a manifesto, 
uh, wrapped around 24 detailed ideas and techniques that parents could use to help manage learning under lockdown. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the learning superpowers. What do you mean by learning superpowers and what are they? So learning superpowers are a subset of the character strengths that form the base of positive psychology. Positive psychology is the study of happiness and flourishing, but the field is based on a set of research that identifies 24 character strengths. And one subset of these character strengths is a subset of knowledge and wisdom, which include things like love of learning and perspective, as in critical thinking. And these are what I call learning superpowers. I look at all these character strengths as superpowers, but in this case specifically, I'm handing these learning superpowers to parents on a platter because part of the manifesto idea with the book was schools have been stealing the passion and the interest in learning from our kids for years. And here was actually your secret opportunity. Now that you had your kids at home and you're managing all these demands and requests from the school, here was your opportunity to pivot learning around your kids' curiosity, your kids' creativity, their thirst for real knowledge, not necessarily you know, textbook knowledge that they regurgitate on tests. So learning superpowers was one way that I framed a mission that I was handing parents that they could embrace during this period. Mm-hmm. The five superpowers that are under that category of wisdom and knowledge are creativity, judgment, which is, like I said, critical thinking, a love of learning, perspective, and curiosity. And these are all sort of the basis of learning. And unfortunately, the more more closely you look at creativity, curiosity, judgment, love of learning, you realize that these aren't necessarily the central themes of a lot of education. I know you've had a couple of recent podcasts, and I listened intently to the one you co-hosted, Seth Godin, about what's school for. And this distinction between learning and education or learning and the learning process right now that squeezes out and doesn't make room for these superpowers is mostly what I was talking about in the book. And and like I said, on one hand, it's tips that parents can use, and I give them specific ways to imbue these superpowers and to start to harness them and embrace them and practice them with their kids, but also how distinctly it stands separate from the education process, which is sort of ground down into more of a fact-based, content-based, and even a compliance-based model rather than one that's about learning. How do you think about the love of learning? What does it mean to you? So love of learning is really described as being excited about mastering new skills and topics and bodies of knowledge. When we talk about love of learning, we talk about passion, we're talking about an internal process. We're really talking about something that comes from within us, something that we almost can't help. I uh, listened to your recent episode that was flipped around and you were interviewed and talking about finding ways to embrace even constraints so that you can find ways to learn, you can find ways to advance your knowledge. It's more than curiosity. It's actually sort of the fire that drives it. Mm-hmm. And there is a creativity element in that. To me, when I think of creativity, which is like finding a creative way or something you have not tried before to solve a problem. A constraint for me is just a problem that I have not learned how to solve yet. 
So everything comes down to learning. And I love the definition of mastering skills because learning is knowledge, understanding complex matters that we are interested in learning, but it's a lot about learning by doing and through experiencing mastering skills. And I think taking this as a segue, I want to start talking about now the experience of parents, what they've been through, and how you've been helping them. Okay. So Robert, through, again, your experience uh, working with parents, what have been the, the biggest challenges for them, working from home and with distance learning on top of it? The biggest challenges have been, on the surface, bandwidth just the ability to manage all of this change and all of this uncertainty in a way that is ideally authentic and transparent with their kids. Handling that challenge of managing uncertainty is usually met with a parent putting on a brave face and saying, everything will be fine. One of the things that I mention in the book is that Kids aren't as naive as we think they are. If we, if we remember back to where we were, whether life circumstances were, whether we were growing to a new age of knowledge and awareness, there was not so much pulling the wool over our eyes as parents believe they're doing with their kids. So managing uncertainty has been a huge, huge obstacle for parents and they're seeing the consequences in their kids and it's puzzling them because they're not necessarily prepared to like handle that in front of their kids and be honest with everything that's going on. It's a very daunting task to try to explain the world to, to kids, especially little kids. Mm -hmm. So Robert, this is a topic that I often talk with my friends who are parents, but one thing that they are uh, constantly debating, how much do I show, like how much vulnerable can I be as I'm also learning to figure this out while I'm trying my best to be a role model, to teach my children, you know, walk the talk. So how do you help parents navigate this very challenging balance? I see the tipping point, the balance being not doing your own therapy in front of your kids and not using your kids for your own processing of issues. But there's some real-time confronting challenges and problem solving that you want your kids to see. Our reflex as parents is to hide that stuff. We want to protect kids. You're not protecting them. You're actually, in some ways, you're depriving them of an opportunity to learn what they need to learn to handle whatever challenges in front of them in the short term. But also, this is the real meat of parenting. This is the real opportunity they have to actually see what they might do as parents themselves. And they're going to be in situations between now and when they're parents that are also going to call for leadership and call for transparency and call for communication. This is an opportunity for you to be brave enough to share with them, developmentally appropriate. You don't want to freak them out, but you also can't overprotect them. It's also going to freak them out. There's a level to which it's not comfortable to be kept in the dark and there's a degree to which kids are showing the pain, the anxiety, the, the frustration, the depression of the situation, regardless of how well we think we're encasing them in bubble wrap. Yeah. What is the risk? Like, what are we depriving the kids from when we are basically showing that we have everything under control? 
You're depriving them of the role model that you described before. There's a difference between the role model that you want to be as the perfect parent on Instagram and the role model that your kids actually need to see. If we think about our parents, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most of us don't see our parents now that we've grown a little bit as some perfect figure. They were people in challenging situations trying to figure things out. They didn't have any training as parents themselves. Parents now can relate to that. As kids, we are making sense of what we're seeing in the world. And I think adding a layer of confusion to that is not actually serving your kids or trusting that they're going to take everything that they're learning now and become the kind of independent adult that you're trying to raise. I mean, I think the hard part is the short-term versus the long-term intention. You know, if we can just get to the end of this and it'll all be done, it'll be fine, and we can put this all behind us at this point, 15 months in, you know, and at some point, two years in, three years in, is going to be not the mission I would suggest, not the mission that I wrote, you know, not the mission for the parents for whom I wrote the book. The mission is really looking at the long-term impact and what kind of kid you're raising now who's part of their childhood has lived through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about learning being relational with respect to, you know, who we learn with, the space we create and expand with each other, and of course, the emotions and the element of time. You just talked about time. Help us unpack this relational aspect and how, how we approach it. Again, now thinking of parents. So there's a lot there. There's relational space, the way we learn in relationship. There's emotion between people and then time. But let's start with relational piece. When we look back at school, which is something I ask parents to do a couple times in this book, to think back about their school experience or what their mental model is of school. I think most of us look back and think about that teacher, that administrator, that coach, that best friend, the relationships that we had. These are the framework and the structure of learning. We learn in relationship. We do everything in relationship, let's be honest. We can talk about being on an island and identifying our feelings and sort of meditating and what they call navel gazing and, and you know figuring out what's going on in us. But really what's happening 99% of our lives is in relation to another person. The experience that you and I have had in the relationship that we've had for the last several years, which has been marked with different parts of our learning journey and our learning about learning and learning about education, I couldn't have made the same gains without our relationship, without the mastermind group that we formed, the workshops that we've done, the the things that we've created together, the my being able to participate in your podcast, you reading my book, like there's a space between us. And in that space, there's room for growth, there's room for connection, love, learning. But specifically in this case, the space that that creates for learning is huge. And the fact that we've discounted that relationship piece in the learning process, especially in education, but even in the learning process, and said, this is something you need to go do. Here's a book, go off in the corner and learn this. I heard you recently tell a story about your mother going to school, but not necessarily having books. So she would crash course study the book before she went in school and then answer all these questions 
it's a version of the current learning process where we're just like throwing content at kids and then demanding they they repeat it. And your your mom felt pride in that because she like the constraint that you described. She she figured out a way to solve that problem. I think the problems don't need to be individual problems. The problems are better solved in relationship. The kind of kids we're raising, the kind of future innovators and creators that we're working to create are going to be doing that in tandem, going to be doing that in teams, going to be doing that with with other people. I, I know for, for myself, the collaborations that I've had and the opportunities to to grow and expand and create things have been the synergy, the the opportunity in that relational space has been so much greater than what I could have done by myself with a notebook, with a book, with a microphone. Yeah. You know, Robert, you mentioned something that I remember also at the beginning. It was over three years ago that we met and we uh, formed together the mastermind group together with two of our friends, David and Ido. I think you said something, I'm paraphrasing, like, we don't know what will come out of this. Something like that. But you said, I have a sense, and that was after the first call, we had a quick call. And you said, but I have a, a feeling or, a, you know, intuition that we want to explore this. We were not going to solve a problem in a month. And we didn't know what will come out of it. But I think what through your journey and the different milestones and points and through mine, now as we talk about, you know, the two of us, and then the shared learning experiences and discussions and reflections and talking about challenges, we started expanding this space. And that's why we are today where we are, which is not where we started from. We just started with a conversation and a lot of ambiguity, like what will come out of it? We do not know, but we, we, we both felt we would learn something. And then we said, okay, there are two other people out there. Let's all join together and start doing something, the mastermind call every week, the consistency and the effort and the progress. And, and the container, an infinite game container, this concept that we were both introduced to through Seth Godin's Alt-MBA, that there are short-term gains, like study this spelling list and I'll test you on Thursday. And there are infinite games, which says, what do you know about star systems? What do you know about the solar system? What do you know about dinosaurs? I'm so excited to say that when you and I met and we created this relational space together that did not have a finite term, that had an infinite goal, an open-ended goal that we knew in the term, you know, in the, in the idea of this, this concept, we knew the rules were going to change. We spent a year on those weekly calls saying, so what are we doing? And then we spent the next year focusing on each of us sort of leading a process. And that led to these workshops and that led to this thing. And next thing you know, you've launched Impact Learning. And yeah. Uh, David's off with higher cause and Ito is changing his life. And, uh, you know, I'm writing book. Like, it's amazing. The sparks that start to fly off it when four people trust each other enough to enter that space, but not necessarily have a deadline and deliverables and, you know, a finite, this has to turn a profit. This has to show results or I'm out of here. That's a great segue to talk about time. So when I think back last March of 2020, I was actually thinking about it uh, like the other day. 
who in the world made the decision to switch from in-person to online in a week? Do you remember that? Like, you know, in most of the states, at least the states that I know, they said, we are going to take next week, we were mid of uh, March, we're starting, you know, basically seeing cases and all, uh, all the uncertainty that was in front of us. And people at the state level, I think most of the people at the state level said, we have a week. So dear teachers and educators and principals, we have a week to switch online. And I thought to myself, who in the world made this decision, Robert? Like a week to do what? You don't even have time to breathe. So let's talk a little bit more about like parents have been frustrated, but there are a lot of elements related to time that created this unnecessary tension. So let's talk about the parents being receivers of that news in March 2020, being receivers of more news as the school year went on that was never good news for parents, and then being left out without information until very late in the summer about how school would reopen. And then at least around here, several schools and school systems changing their intention with weeks to go before school or even when school was about to reopen. There's one school district out here that took the first two weeks off because then they wanted to retool so they could do online or hybrid. I predicted in the book, it's funny, I was working with someone who was helping me design the cover of the book and she said, we really have to rush and get this out because the pandemic is ending and like kids will be back in school and parents won't need this. And I'm like, I hate to be a doomsayer, but this is going to be needed. I hate to say it, but like, we're still talking about the book now well into almost the end of the school year. And I think parents are going to need this book again next fall because we don't really know what we're walking into. And so all this to say, the average parent has been yanked around, not communicated with, demanded that they do things like change their home structure, change their work situation. Women are on the back end of this. People who are working hourly labor are on the back end of this. They have very little choice, very little flexibility. And it's not been fair is too light a word. It's been completely unfair to parents what schools have demanded of them. If you ask who made this decision, who consulted the parents, who consulted any family or asked them for their help? It's been a brutal process for kids. They've been on the back end of this, but parents too. Mm-hmm. How has the relationship between parents and teachers evolved during the pandemic following everything you are talking about? It's interesting. We were talking before about parents being a little bit more transparent. I think the teachers that were leaning towards the human end of their job, of being understanding and empathetic with parents, understanding what kids are going through, have created a plus in that category, have created stronger relationships with parents in spite of schools and school systems not treating parents well. I think overall education and parents, the relationship is crumbling. I think it is creating such a, a deficit of trust and such a low regard for each other that we're almost going to have to rebuild either this fall or next fall to start those conversations. I work in schools in inner part of the city, and there's a lot of parents who are mistrusting of the medical system, 
mistrusting of the health system, mistrusting of the school district's intentions. I'm not sure we're going to get more than maybe 50% of those kids back in the fall. I mean, right now, as we're talking, the administration and the Department of Education is pushing this very strong party line, including the head of the teachers union, is coming out with, we're opening schools 100% in the fall, 100% schools open for business. And I get that, and I get the intentions behind it. But getting to your question, they've left the parents out of this equation, and they're not asking anything. They're just assuming that the few parents who are very loud about wanting their kids back in school speak for the whole, the whole of the community. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, you are the psychologist in our conversation here, I'm not. But I have to think that it is difficult to go through life, even a day, if I don't trust myself and I don't trust those around me, whether it's my family, my friends, the education systems, the school. So what kind of guidance do you provide to parents to help them rebuild trust? It's so hard. It's so hard to have one half of a relationship build trust. Almost impossible, but I don't want to be so black and white about it. I think there are things that parents can do. One part of the book suggests that not just starting off your kid's learning day at home with connecting with where they are and what's going on with them. You and I started a mastermind group several years ago, and at some point, we agreed to stop just saying, how are you? I'm fine. We agreed to actually show up and ask and find out how everyone's doing and where they are. And it changed everything. And that experience has changed everything for me, has changed how I've approached my working relationships and my personal relationships. It just, that experience of slowing down to ask the question and to pay attention and to make eye contact is almost rebellious in not just our society's kind of movement to go faster and to, to be productive, but also in the face of 15 months of gnawing community anxiety about uncertainty. If you can actually slow down and make eye contact, connect with the teacher, have a conversation about what's going on and how everything is going, you change the whole dynamic. And that's the one suggestion, one suggestion that I make to parents in the book. There are also educators, there are teachers who are listening. What um, insight would you share with them to help build Again, trust both both sides. I had amazing conversations with teachers about a year ago who were hearing from their administrators and their, their supervisors that they really should be very cautious about what they're demanding of their students in a, all of a sudden, like you said, a snap second decision that they should be learning from home. They didn't know if they were in a house where someone was sick. They didn't know if they had lost a grandparent. So these educators came to me and said, we're being told that we have to like take it easy on kids, that we can't assume what's going on. And I really don't know how to finish this year because the end of the year requires all this compliance stuff of, you know, hand the stuff in, get these grades, study for this test. It's really clashing with, you know, the advice is clashing with the agenda, the, the curriculum, the, what was already in place. And I empathize with them, but I also said, listen, we never really did know what was going on in someone else's life. We just assumed and colluded to ignore it, right? 
the kids are going to show up after sleepless nights without breakfast, and they were going to act like kids who were ready to learn. And the teachers who did the unique heroic work of actually meeting their kids where they were and making sure they're okay and doing that kind of slowing down would always change the learning situation. So these teachers came to me at the end of last year and they were confused. And I said, here's the challenging part. Next fall, things are going to start up and there's going to be a reset. And all the schools are going to be like, okay, back to business. We're going to we're moving on from this, right? We, we want to return to normal. Enough of that sort of wishy-washy, like human factor stuff. Now it's time to start putting our nose to the grindstone and get the work done. And I said, the hard part is to stay open to this feeling you have right now that you don't know what's going on in your kids' lives. You don't know what's going on with the parent that you call. You don't know what is going on in their lives or what stressors they're dealing with because that's not going to change in the fall. As much as we're looking forward to a year ago, we were looking forward to the fall being a time when it was all over and it was reset and we'd have vaccines and everything was going to be fine. Keeping open to that idea and slowing down and appreciating there's another human on the other end of the line who you don't really have any idea what they're dealing with is important. Mm-hmm. So when I hear you talk about that, I think of empathy a lot. Like I cannot assume other things because I don't know. And if I know of some situations, perhaps I will try to relate more to the person. I'm not having the same experience or I'm not in the same situation, but I will do the best I can to relate to that. What other skills do parents need to learn to continue to make progress? So I think the idea of slowing down is a very simple and complex. It's, it's a simple thing to say, and it's a hard thing to do. People in our lives who have come to us and said, we started meditating, or I've really gotten into yoga, or I find some kind of distance running or swimming, uh, you know, sort of meditative, you know, grounding process are on the kind of track that I would suggest to answer your question. I think it's a very individual track. I think it depends. The kind of meditation I do is different than what most people do. Some people are looking at an app for 10 minutes in the morning, sort of centering themselves so they can get on with their day. Some people are using meditation more expansively, like I'm doing it twice, twice a day for 20 minutes in a way that is actually dealing with accumulated stress and managing that, that whole load. But either way, the answer to your question is coming back to that concept of slowing down, and there are lots of different ways to do that. So I would suggest practically the parents who are curious what that looks like or educators, don't just stop at sort of the three-minute meditation you have at the end of a yoga class, but actually look into an app like Calm or Insight Timer or start to explore what mindfulness is. There's lots of different ways to get there, but I think the ultimate goal is to find some habit and some muscle memory where you slow down in the face of the things that want to speed you up. And one thing, Robert, I will add is, because I see that often, first of all, with myself, when I discover something and it works, the hardest part is to keep doing that, like every day or as often as I need to. What I call like practice, a skill, a practice, something that I do often and realizing that something helps us is good and then establishing a more consistent practice. Like don't give up. You may need 10 days. You may need 80 days, everybody's different. For me, it took me quite a bit of time to like slow down. 
I went through a bigger transition when I left corporate and then I started working on my own at home. That was like three years ago. But I had to create a lot of time and space for myself to figure these things out. And if you ask me how much compared to what I knew before, I will tell you, I don't know, a million times more. <laughs> this is how, how, how big it felt. The truth is it was not big. It was just different for me. I had not done it before. And I think that's one thing that I keep reminding myself, like be patient and then be consistent. I love this theme too. You've hit on it a couple of times now in our conversation of not knowing how much time it would take, us not knowing what we were meant to do together or how long our mastermind group should meet or what we should work on, but also not knowing when you start to create the space that you'd need a million times what you estimated before. You would need more space to figure out how to slow things down on a regular basis, not just in the face of the most pressing crisis. Like the idea of practice, when you say that, tells me I do that on a daily basis. So I'm practiced and prepared for when the big stuff hits, right? So these regular routines are require more space than we often budget for. Yeah. And this is where we also, because many people think this is like uh, time we don't, it's not productive time. Like, you know, like you are not doing something. To me, this is where like the self-awareness, self-regulation, but also mastering of skills, like the deep learning happens. I have a practice that every week I sit down and I reflect, what did I learn last week? Which parts did I struggle with? Okay, so that means probably these skills are not very well developed. I still need to, to, to work on these skills. But unless I create this space that it's basically me journaling and talking to myself, I'm not doing anything more productive than that, right? Unless I create that space, I cannot like really reflect on the skills I'm mastering and why I'm struggling on some things and why I'm making progress. Because I'm also making very good progress on other aspects. I think it's a little bit of reframing what is like, what is time and how do we use time and space to make progress and how do we measure that? And the story about productivity, I hear you hitting on too, like this idea of like, I'm not being productive during that time, but does it increase your productivity the rest of your week that you can do that on Saturday mornings? Yeah. On Saturday mornings, this is my routine. Like I journal about that specific topic. It could be other things that come to mind. And so I write about them. But this is like, let's say one thing that I want to reflect on during my Saturday morning journaling. It is part of the process of learning and building skills. That's, that's what I've realized that again, three or five years ago, I did not know or I was not aware of. It's part of the process that was missing back then. Yeah. So it's more intentional learning because learning is about mastering skills so we can continue to learn the things we want to learn. What are the different ways that parents have uh, responded to the pandemic, I guess, crisis and situation and all the aspects that uh, it brought? Did you see a lot of variation in the way that uh, they responded? Or more or less, did you see that everybody was going down the same path? I saw a lot of variation with a, a surface level of anxiety and a low level bubbling of panic. There was a tendency to sort of follow someone who was out front and we should all do that. 
we should all do this one thing. We should all do this for our families. And so in that way, there was kind of a very similar vein to what a lot of people were doing. But when we eventually, sadly, once we hit six months, once we hit a year, then we started to see similar challenges coming up. Like how is my family structured now that things have changed? How do we parent? How are we parenting intentionally? Now that we're both in the house all the time and we're not dividing and conquering the same way. So the challenges that parents have been confronting have been similar in some ways, but it depends on sort of whether you're the half of parents, the half of the parents of the world who are looking at this constraint as a problem to solve, or the half that's looking at as still something I just need to hold my breath a little bit longer and we'll get back to normal. Mm-hmm. What is, uh, or maybe what are the biggest lessons parents learned? Maybe first about themselves, and then about also the relationships with their children. There's another one in between those two about themselves first, that self-care could no longer be treated as a luxury. And before we get to their relationships with their children, their relationships with each other, when the terms started to change, and all of a sudden there weren't opportunities to divide and conquer and Everyone wasn't in cars running here and there, and you know, but you were running up against each other and passing each other in the hall and sharing more space with each other, sometimes both working from home, that there needed to be more of a conversation about the relationship, not just the parenting, not just the kids, but there's actually this, this connection that forms the roof of a virtual home that is the parents coming together and connecting in a way that supports stability, in a way that manages uncertainty, in a way that allows kids to feel safe and know that they're seen and protected and heard. So the individual self-care, the parenting unit, and then the connecting with the kids is a matter of, as you said, empathy before, as a matter of There's a chapter in my book called Be Glinda, Be the Good Witch from The Wizard of Oz. Like, Think about the tone that you're approaching your kids with and be that person who sees their potential, sees their, is on their side. Create a space that's safe for your kids. So that's a a huge learning that's come out of this is school wasn't necessarily going to make things better, but it was your job at home to make your home that space where your kids could have whatever feelings they had, deal with whatever uncertainty and still feel well-connected and safe. Mm-hmm. Do you have any practical recommendations for a parent who, who heard what you just talked about, like see the, the full potential in my child? Like, how do I do that if I don't know how to do it? One way to start is to look into these character strengths and positive psychology. I think we've talked about strength-based this and strength-based that, especially in my profession for years. In schools, you're filling out a form on a kid that's having difficulty, and you're talking about the strengths and the challenges. But the strengths that we put down are they have good attendance or they're polite, or, you know, these aren't really their strengths. Their strengths are curiosity and creativity, humor, honesty. They're being generous, appreciating things like, you know, beauty in the world, having awe. These are the kind of strengths. So having a, a sort of sit down and understanding what your kids' strengths are, is starting to see them in a way that sees all of that potential. 
I mean, for instance, looking at your kids is like, you know, I have three kids and this one's really a math head and this one's into art and that one's into sports is almost sort of slotting them into like what the world is offering them. Is it going to offer them a degree in some STEM field? It's going to offer them a scholarship in the sport. You're guiding them to a future that's based on someone else's criteria. Rather, use your own criteria or borrow these ones from positive psychology because it's be much more useful to them and they have a lot more avenues to exercise their creativity, their teamwork, their leadership, their honesty. So that's a place to start. Mm-hmm. What uh, recommendation or suggestion do you have for parents to continue to, to build trustful relationships with their children and with teachers? I've started off every workshop that I've done with parents for the last year with the metaphor, even the cliche of when you're in an airplane and you're about to take off and they do a presentation, they tell you to put on your oxygen mask before you put on your kids. And I asked them why, why they do that. And I reframed the question. I said, well, why do you know that? Like, why, why is this information that's in the front of your mind? They said, well, because the steward, I said, yeah, but you were the only one paying attention. You're, you, you're in this workshop because you're a steward of your family. You are responsible for their emotional and mental well-being. And that's a huge, huge responsibility. Unfortunately, often carried by one parent and not shared as much as it could be. Divide and conquer, right? Because there are a lot of demands. So my answer to your question is not put on your oxygen mask first, but my answer to your question is, Before you go into that challenge of building a relationship with a teacher or preparing your kids for next fall, whatever that's going to bring, figure out what supports that you need to set that up. Figure out what kind of time with your friends, time for yourself, self-care, therapy, coaching, a parent group, some kind of support system, because you are not as strong as you could be with those supports in place. So I would start off, the first step in that marathon is to take a step back and figure out what support system you need to run it. Yeah. How do parents know they are making progress on their own versus I need to stop and ask for help because I'm not making progress? Like, what are the signs? What are the triggers? How do they know? That's a great question. I find myself speaking with parents about calls that they're making for parent coaching. I need help with our daughter. I need help with our relationship. I need help with my partnership. I need this, I need this, I need this. So what we're aware of when we're making those calls or wondering, asking ourselves the question you just asked, is that there's something that doesn't feel right and we're not sure if it's really if it really requires help. But in my experience, we understate that need so greatly, and we are so used to taking care of things ourselves that just like your your Saturday morning ritual, I don't think it's something that you would have prescribed or known that was necessary back then, but you couldn't replace it now. And I'm not saying that therapy or parent coaching or my support to parents is necessary and everyone should have it, although I think there are a lot of families that could use it. But I think we underestimate and we short ourselves in favor of, you know, I don't know a single parent who wouldn't say the following, I'd spend my last dime on my kids, but I'm going to wait, you know, for that next thing for myself. That's not 
you know, I'm not the priority here. Let's focus on the kids. But if you're not also doing that self-care and also taking care of your relationship and your the structure of your family, which is supported by the parenting partnership, that's not actually serving the kids. So I think the answer to your question is before you know, before you think you're sure is probably when, if you're asking that question, how am I doing and do I need support? It's worth looking into. Mm -hmm. How long does it take for parents who come to you until they are starting to see that they are making progress? It really does vary. The way I'm working now in, in a team approach, approaching parents and parent coaching and also supporting their family, that we're not starting to work with people who aren't able to commit to like a six-month engagement. Because I can't say that it's going to take six months. I think that we'll start to see results sooner. But if we're not making a commitment, we don't have the flexibility, the space like you and I created back when we met. So the short answer is somewhere short of six months. The longer answer is the results and the change that we're looking for right now, coming to someone like me in, in kind of crisis mode, may be different from what you actually are looking to do with your family. And so I find families at that six-month mark saying either, thank you so much, we've made this progress, we wanted to reach this goal, we needed to get back to this place of functioning, or saying, great, now that we've done that, now that we, now we can see that there's work to do and we're ready to, to go forward on the longer term, setting our kids up for high school, setting our kids up for college, setting our, you know, our family up for a long-term expansion. So it varies. But the short answer is somewhere short of six months, usually in that space of that first six-month engagement. So the, the element of time, time and space and be patient about the progress we are making keeps coming up, I think, in this discussion. Yeah. You know, early on in my, in my career in business, there was a professional who said, uh, you know, I, I know you're coming to me with this problem and you want a solution today but it took probably somewhere between six months and a year for this problem to be created. It's going to take a little bit more than a day for me to find a solution to it. Yeah, but we can find a solution and it, it goes back now to narrative and the story we tell ourselves, like about the progress we are making, about how difficult it might have been. But if we want, we will make progress, but also this progress will not happen like tomorrow. We need time and space and patience. And relationship and trust and commitment. Those are the currency that we're working with. And that's the currency that we have going on within our team that we can also help parents see and help families build, rebuild that trust and that commitment and that space to play that longer game. Let's pause here and see if there is anything, Robert, that... Uh an insight, any aspect of your experience that you want to talk about that we did not unpack? I feel like the learning question about how, how we rebuild these relationships is a reflection of what's happening on every level in our lives right now. We're finding our way back to seeing family and friends that we haven't seen in person and giving, you know, gingerly giving hugs to people that we haven't touched physically in months, uh, sometimes over a year. And I feel like the, the craving to return to some sense of normal is obviously sort of tainted by the knowledge that this isn't normal, that this is still different, that the second we 
we give that hug and we turn a little further, you know, our, our face to the side, or we put a mask back on, or we go to dine outdoors, or we we do whatever. So I feel like these questions, these big questions that you've raised today about learning in relationship and the question about how we as parents manage our families to get through this kind of crisis. And hopefully with my support to come out stronger on the other side than you even started. I think at the core of that is this question of relationship and creating a space and recognizing there's a person on the other end of this equation all the time. And you can you can say it's about empathy, but I think at the end of the day, if it's not in relation to someone else, it's it's made up. It's not actually moving anything forward. You know, when you have these goals that you've discussed in terms of learning, in terms of our families, they all happen in relationship. The question about whether making progress is looking around and seeing whether the people around us are making progress. Yeah. And perhaps a good question, you made me think of this now, for parents and teachers, after everything you have been through, now you have an opportunity to rebuild your relationship between parent and teacher. I mean, I'm a creative, curious person, you know that. To me, this is like amazing. So you have now an opportunity to rebuild it. So what would you like it to be? And ultimately, I also think of children and students. When you rebuild this wonderful relationship, you decide what it is. Your children and your students are going to be benefited from that because they're going to be actually in the space between the two of you. (laughs) Exactly. And the two of you hold these very important roles in these kids' lives. And the stronger that you can become by taking care of yourself, the stronger your relationship become, the stronger your trust in your relationship with the other person who's helping raise and educate your kids. Not only do they benefit, but they are the product of that work. Robert, I want to share something very quick because when people think about building trust, they think that it's a lot of work. And I don't say it's not. But here is one example. If you have the other person's back and you believe they do the best they can, you actually build trust much faster than you think. My mom was a single mother and she was not able to attend any of the teacher-parent conferences or meetings, any of that, because she was working. And she was working also in the evening shift and everything. My mom trusted that the teachers would teach us everything that my mom could not teach us, right? My mom did not have a lot of specific knowledge on the subjects that I wanted to learn and my sisters wanted to learn. The teachers trusted that my mom, as a single mom, was doing the best she could. She couldn't make the meetings. She couldn't do a lot of things that other parents were able to do. But I think what they had is that they trusted each other and they had each other's back. They made it work. And I benefited from that. And my two sisters, like we benefited. There was never tension. I always saw collaboration. Now I have words for it. They had each other's back. I know it's different many decades later. I just want to share that it's not often as difficult as we think it is if we just believe that the other person is doing the best they can. I think the opportunity that teachers have to believe that about parents, is a game changer. It's almost an underground rebellious statement among educators to say, you know, this parent is not trying to send their worst to school. They're doing the best they can 
what we're seeing is the best that they can do and meeting them there changes everything. And I would say that that could extend to every relationship we have, whether there's a principal that's breathing down your neck for lesson plans as an educator, whether it's a parent who has to respond to the needs of working from home and demands from school, et cetera. The other person on the other end of that equation is responding to pressures like you are. And if you can connect with the part of them that is managing those feelings, if you can create that relational space, even when the other person isn't aware of it, and extend that grace, extend that goodwill, and extend your your love, essentially, your love, your compassion for what the other person is dealing with, you'll find that everything changes. Wonderful. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, Robert. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidu. Till next time.